You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me look at you. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. As you can probably tell, my voice has more or less recovered. So just because of that, it's been a pretty great week for me. Also, it's February, which means it's Pliny the Younger season in Los Angeles, aka the only time of year you can get this really awesome beer from my homeland that I love very much. And I've already managed to get it twice. So I'm very happy. And there's still like three weeks left or two weeks left in the month. Two weeks left in the month because that's the number of episodes I still have to record counting this one. No movies this week, as I'm still a little bit swamped after my lovely two-week sinus infection. And like I've said, I have been hunting for beer. But also, frankly, not really anything showing right now that I particularly care to watch, as I refuse to see Avatar in theaters. And the only other new films that are out, I either already saw with my friend who worked on their marketing, or for my other job, ergo I can't slash won't review those, because I still haven't checked to make sure that is actually okay. But there will for sure be at least one review next week because a Marvel Boy is coming out and you know I am a bitch for some Marvel movies. On to this week's topic. No more need to pratter about. This week, we're going over the history, responsibilities, and whatever comes up along the way when it comes to a film's cameraman, better known as the cinematographer or director of photography. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Like last week, let's just start out nice and easy. What is a cinematographer? Cinematography, literally cinema photography, it's a portmanteau of those two words, is the art of capturing images for motion pictures, whether it be literally on film or in a digital format, which is more common today. The person in charge of this is known as the cinematographer or director of photography, which is the more commonly used term today. I will be using them interchangeably a lot today, just FYI. The cinematographer creates all on-screen visuals by means of lighting, composition, framing, camera movements, camera angles, lenses, exposure, color, and everything else you see pertaining to any of those things. Cinematographers also set the overall look and mood of a film's visual style. Each visual element that appears on screen, also known as mise-en-scene, which is French for literally what's in the scene, should not only serve, but also enhance the film's story. And it's the DP's job to make sure that everything captured is in service of this. They achieve this in collaboration with the other departments of the film crew, of course, who are all working to achieve the aesthetic vision of the director. So now that you have that baseline description, let's look a little bit into the history of cinematography, again, speedrun style. 
It's probably not surprising to hear that the history of cinematography began in conjunction with the creation of the motion picture camera. The first instance of cinematography, therefore, goes back to what is believed to be the world's first film, 1888's Round Hay Garden Scene. It was a 2.11 second sequence captured by Louis Le Prince, a French inventor, on October 14, 1888 in Leeds, Yorkshire. Several other inventors at this time, including Thomas Edison, also began experimenting with capturing moving images with their own film cameras. Edison's invention, the kinetoscope, was a forerunner to the motion picture camera and allowed people to view short motion picture films through a peephole viewer. The credit of inventing cinematography in the traditional sense is often given to Auguste and Lumi Lumiere, the creators of the cinematograph, the world's first motion picture camera slash projector. With this invention, cinematography shifted from the small world of the kinetoscope to the big screen that the cinematograph provided. In these early days, the Lumiere's films were referred to as, quote, animated photography. With this animated photography in place, film, of course, expanded and developed rapidly, spreading the world over. As such, it allowed artists and innovators a chance to try their hand at experimenting with the emerging art of the motion picture. In these early days of film, the director and the DP were, more often than not, the same person. As film became a more advanced medium, however, the job specialized away from the director. Like with the art of production design, George Millier and Edwin S. Porter in the late 1900s, early 1910s were integral in furthering the art. Porter in his experiments with close-ups and camera movements, and Millier with his fantastical in-camera effects. Also, like with production design, the first major leap forward in cinematography came from the work of director D.W. Griffith and his cinematographer Billy Bitzer. The duo's work on nearly 500 films, including The Birth of a Nation and Intolerance, shifted cinematography from everything essentially being shot wide like a play to moving in closer on actors and other things in scenes and using these different shots to evoke meaning within a scene. They're also credited for introducing fundamental filmmaking techniques such as the soft focus, fade-outs, close-ups, and backlighting. As film became more established, advancements in the medium included film stock that was more light-sensitive, artificial lighting became more standard versus relying on the sun, and an array of lenses were introduced, including the wide-angle and the telephoto. We'll touch on what all of that means a little bit later on. In 1917, Technicolor was introduced, and film was finally able to be recorded in color. Before, color needed to be added after filming, which was a long process as each frame, if they were, you know, not tinting the whole frame, had to be painted by hand. Color film, however, would not gain full prominence over black and white until the 60s or 70s because it was abhorrently expensive to light. And again, we'll touch on that in a little in a little bit. In 1919, in Hollywood, one of the first trade societies was formed, which was the American Society of Cinematographers, or ASC, which is still around today. ASC was founded to recognize the cinematographer's contribution to the art and science of motion pictures. When the studio system emerged in the 1920s, the cinematographers, like pretty much all the creatives of this era, were required to follow a strict set of guidelines to adhere to a studio's visual style. And not doing so may have seen you losing your job. 
1927, the jazz singer brought sound to the motion picture. For the camera department, this technological advancement was a big old problem. Cameras at this time were stupid loud, and they had to be placed in large boxes to muffle them. This made mobility of the camera nearly impossible, which is why you don't see a lot of moving shots in early sound films. They couldn't move them. They were in like these humongous, like porta potty but wider like maybe like the fancy porta potties from weddings it was like they looked like that but the other way just very very yeah until the invention of the barney which is basically a soundproof blanket moving a camera around was virtually impossible to do quickly and while the studios did uphold very strict guidelines instead of stifling creativity the rulebook ended up inspiring innovation leading to advancements within the medium one such breakthrough occurred in 1941 when director Orson Welles and his DP Greg Toland shot Citizen Kane Toland's experiments with various lenses and lighting setups ultimately gave rise to the development of deep focus which allows many elements of a shot to be captured simultaneously this work became the catalyst that would take film into its current modern era. In the 1950s and 60s, as the old school ways of filmmaking began to fall into legend due to the dismantling of the studio system, new filmmaking visual styles emerged to compete with television. This included the implementation of ultra widescreen formats like Cinemascope and VistaVision, which required cinematographers to adjust to the changing aspect ratios, which is the ratio of a film's width to its height. Widescreen formats were frustrating for many directors and cinematographers. Quote, it is a formula for a funeral or for snakes, but not for human beings, said director Fritz Lang. And it ended up actually becoming just as restrictive to DPs as sound had initially been. Eventually, 70 millimeter films were produced, although the Biograph Company had been doing, had originally invented that back in 1896, which would ultimately lead to the modern IMAX, which isn't, which is wider, taller. I guess would be the more apt description. It's taller than like Cinemascope is. Cinemascope's very long and skinny. Think like Lawrence of Arabia, how like long and skinny it is. But IMAX is a little bit thicker. That's basically the difference. It also looks a lot better. Watching a old like VistaVision or Cinemascope film that they didn't like reformat is is a little brutal. It's very long and skinny. <laughs> on on screen, fine. On 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 a TV, it's it's rough. This era was also when color started to gain popularity as other means to attract audiences back to theaters. The first successful color system had been called Kinema Color, which was first publicly exhibited in 1908, and that used red and green filters to give an approximation of the colors. Similar color systems in the silent era would also use two color systems, including early Technicolor. While the majority of silent films were still colored through the tinting and toning of film prints to match particular settings or moods. Three-strip Technicolor, which was red, green, blue, was introduced in the 1930s and was used more in Britain at this time to great effect. The lighting for Technicolor at that time required completely different systems and trained techs, which of course was abhorrently expensive, so not a big surprise that didn't really take off in Hollywood, where they already had legions of trained professionals in the old ways that probably weren't eager to retrain in something they'd been doing for decades. It would take the arrival of the far cheaper Eastman color in 1950, which had improved color rendering, that made color cinematography progressively the norm. Of course, not long after color film became the norm, so did the color TV. So that didn't really work out. 
The next major leap forward in cinematography came thanks to the New Hollywood movement, which continued film's journey in separating itself from its smaller screen counterpart. These new filmmakers and the retiring of the movie moguls that built the studios meant that much of the old rule books were thrown out, and as a result of the auteur theory regaining dominance, the director's vision became paramount. So now the DP would work in conjunction with the director to create a film's visual style instead of them having to conform to a series of guidelines. Further, as older filmmakers retired and the younger visionaries entered the field, the cinematographer-director duo would kind of become a thing and the two would work together to create new era-defining styles. This included Martin Scorsese and Michael Chapman and Steven Spielberg and Bill Butler. It also didn't hurt that young cinematographers were able to enter the scene thanks to union restrictions loosening, allowing those new cinematographers to enter the industry. The most major change in the modern day for cinematographers is, of course, the shift from film to digital mediums. This technology had been around since the 1980s, but didn't start gaining dominance until the early 2000s when digital methods started being used for archival purposes. By 2010, digital filmmaking took over as the dominant style eventually causing the elimination of physical film prints being distributed widely to theaters. As technology continues to advance, so do the abilities of the modern cinematographers. With CGI, digital grading, and other post-production softwares, cinematographers can create visual elements that come purely from the director's imagination. So now that you have a grasp of some of the history, let's look into what a DP actually does. The cinematographer and director work closely together as the main job of a cinematographer is to ensure that their choices support the director's overall vision for the film. The cinematographer may also act as the camera operator on more low-budget productions. Once hired, the cinematographer will go over the script, creating ideas for lighting, color, and potential angles for each scene. Then, in conjunction with the director and the other departments, a cohesive vision of what the film will look like and what it will be is ultimately fleshed out. In preparation of production, a cinematographer will often attend rehearsals, if there are any, so that they might observe the actors doing blocking, which is basically choreographing the movements actors do within a scene. During rehearsals, cinematographers can adjust the camera angles, movements, what have you, in response to anything that comes up at this juncture. Actors will often adjust their movements and blocking to better fit the framing of the shot. This can happen either during rehearsals or on the day of filming. During pre-production, the cinematographer decides which type of cameras, camera lenses, camera angles, and camera techniques best bring each scene to life. Budget, of course, is brought into consideration for what can be produced and in what amount of time. Additionally, a cinematographer will have to figure out what the most effective vantage points for the camera will be. A good cinematographer will be able to understand what visuals can be achieved in each location that will capture the director's vision and will also give ideas and concepts to the director that they may not have considered. DPs also, back of the mind, want to make sure they've got enough coverage for the editor later on. Coverage is the amount of angles and vantage points the camera captures of a scene. The script supervisor, essentially the person keeping track of what is being shot and ensuring continuity, will often assist in this process. The DP also decides upon and uses lighting to create the right visual mood the director wants to achieve. They must know how to enhance an image's depth, contrast, and contour to support the story's atmosphere. This is achieved by the usage of several different pieces of equipment, which I will expand upon a little bit later. 
As you may have guessed from all of this, the DP is in charge of the camera and lighting crews. The size of that crew varies, most often due to budget and the size of the production, but the department can include a camera operator who is responsible for physically operating the camera, including adjusting the focus, aperture, and zoom. There's the first assistant camera or first AC who is responsible for looking after the camera and lens. Other responsibilities include loading the film or the media, checking the focus, and adjusting the lens. They also assist the camera operator in making technical adjustments to the camera. Then there's the second assistant camera or second AC. They're responsible for maintaining the camera equipment, including keeping track of the camera reports and battery levels. They also assist the first AC with lens changes and other technical tasks. Camera utility is responsible for general maintenance, including carrying and setting up equipment and assisting with technical tasks as needed. So that's like the camera stuff. Then there's the lighting people that starts with the gaffer who is responsible for lighting the set, including setting up and adjusting lights, hanging and focusing lights and adjusting the lighting throughout the day. Next is the key grip who is responsible for physically supporting the camera and lighting equipment, including setting up camera cranes and dollies and assisting with lighting, rigging and support. Then you've got your dolly grip who is responsible for operating the dolly and other camera support equipment, including moving the dolly and camera smoothly and efficiently. If you don't know, a dolly is a track system that allows the camera to move seamlessly through a scene. It works similarly to a hand car on a train track. In larger productions, think like a Marvel or a Jurassic, these positions may be divided into additional sub-departments, but this is more or less the gist. Now that you have a working knowledge of what a DP does, let's look into some of the things DPs have to decide upon. There are several types of motion picture cameras and brands, each with its own unique features and capabilities, and choosing a camera typically comes down to budget and the images they will capture. As far as formats go, though, it pretty much comes down to digital or film. So film cameras, they use rolls of celluloid film to capture and record images. They have been used for the majority of the history of cinema and continue to be used today by many independent filmmakers and artists who prefer the look and feel of film. So if you're using physical film, the film stocks you can choose between are either black and white or color, and then you have to choose between negative or reversal film. Negative film creates a negative when developed, which must be then printed on negative stock to produce a positive image, meaning one that can go through the projector. And reversal film, which when developed, creates a positive image, so it cuts down a step, but reversal film is far more finicky to shoot with, so there's pros and cons to both. The next choice is a film speed, meaning its sensitivity to light. So-called low speed or slow films require more light to be exposed properly, while high speed films require much less light for proper exposure. Slower stocks tend to produce sharper and more fine grained images, while faster stocks have larger grain size and less sharpness. Different makes and types of films each have their own subtle differences in their image qualities and what colors pop a little bit more, um, differences in saturation contrast, image tone, and these differences are used by cinematographers to produce the on-screen effect they desire. The size of the film is also a factor, and those range from 8mm, which is considered a more amateur format, than 16, which is used a lot in indie films because it's cheaper than the standard of 35, which is considered professional size. And then there's also the lesser used 65 millimeter, which is used to capture IMAX images. Each also has a super variety that allows a larger image to be captured. 
then there's digital cameras which capture and record images electronically, typically onto a memory card or hard drive. They have become increasingly popular in recent years due to their versatility, ease of use, and cost effectiveness. When it comes to doing things like what film stock can do, much of those effects can be imitated by digital cameras and lenses. Do they look as good? Not really, if you know what you're looking for, but in the last like 10 years or so, it's gotten a lot better. So once you've landed on your camera, you've got to pick some lenses to go on it. Cinematographers use a variety of lenses to control the focus, depth of field, and overall look of the images. Just like your eyes, the lens focuses rays of light to form an image. Lenses vary a great deal in what they can do, when they're used, as well as the results they can produce. The most common types of lenses include wide-angle lenses, telephoto lenses, and macro lenses. Wide-angle lenses have short focal lengths and make spatial distances more obvious while showing a wider angle of vision. A telephoto lens shows a narrower angle of vision, depicting far-off objects as seemingly close together and basically flattens the perspective. Macro lenses have very short depth of field and are for basically capturing things very, very, very close up. There's also zoom lenses, which allow a camera operator to change the focal length within a shot or quickly between setups for shots. These are the ones you use to like rack focus. So you change focus between two different subjects. So like one goes blurry and then one goes sharp and then vice versa. That's you do that with a zoom lens. Prime lenses are lenses of a fixed focal length, which usually offer greater optical quality and are usually quote unquote faster, meaning they need less light to capture an image and are usually less expensive to buy or rent than zoom lenses. Most older movies were shot with prime lenses because high quality zoom lenses had not yet been invented. Certain scenes or even types of modern filmmaking require the use of zooms for speed of setup or ease of use. It takes time to swap lenses and time is money on a film set. And a lot of modern filmmaking really likes to use likes to use zooms in shots. Moving on, there's lighting equipment. Cinematographers use lighting equipment to control the mood and atmosphere of a scene, including light fixtures, gels and diffusers. There are a ton of different lights that achieve a ton of different things, but we'd be here all day if I broke down each one and all of you would turn it off. And I don't I don't want you to do that. I put a link in the show notes if you want to explore that further, because it is a lot. Um, And what's more important for kind of gaining the basics of this job is to just be aware of some of the techniques, which I will outline shortly. I do want to go over the other things because they're less commonly known. The gels. Gels are color sheets of plastic that are placed over lights to change the color of that light. This is useful for creating a specific mood or matching the color temperature of different light sources. So most film lights are white when you get them. And if you want it to look like the inside of a bedroom, most people don't have white lights in their bedroom. They have like a warmer or a cooler color. Gels will help make the big film lights up here or give the illusion that they're a practical light within a within a scene. There's also diffusers, which are semi-transparent pieces of material, which is placed between a light source and a subject to kind of diffuse the light as it passes through the material so it looks less harsh. There are also scrims, which are typically made from steel. I saw another thing that said fabric. I've not used those. I've only ever used the steel ones. They also help you reduce the intensity and harshness of lighting on set. Finally, of the big ones, there's something called a cookie, which provides texture to the lights. Like they're really good for like putting patterns on the back of the wall, which give things like more depth or like mimicking things like leaves 
coming through like basically if you want to mimic the moon coming through the tree but you don't have a tree you to put up a cookie and it will when the light shines through it it'll give the illusion that like you're seeing moonlight coming through the trees even though it's it's a film light illuminating from the other side of a basically a wooden board that has leaf textures on it is that conf- I feel like it makes sense to me because I've done it and I've seen it so hopefully that makes sense So lighting is obviously an important aspect of filmmaking as it greatly impacts the mood, tone, and atmosphere of a scene. So some of the most common lighting styles used in film include natural lighting. This is just lighting that comes from natural sources such as the sun. Natural lighting is often used to create a natural and realistic look. Think your daytime walks in the park in a romantic comedy. Hard lighting is lighting that creates sharp shadows and high contrast, giving the scene a dramatic or intense look, kind of like noir films. There's soft lighting, which creates diffuse shadows and low contrast, which gives the scene a warm and inviting look. There's high key lighting, which creates a bright and cheerful look, often with the subject being brightly lit and the background being overexposed. Low key lighting, which uh, creates a dark and moody look, often with the subject being dramatically lit and the background being underexposed. Backlighting, which is lighting that comes from behind the subject, which creates a halo effect and separates the subject from the background. There's side lighting, which is lighting that comes from the side of the subject and that creates shadows and highlights texture. And then there's rim lighting, which is lighting that outlines the subject, creating a rim of light around the edges. The most common lighting technique is called three-point lighting, and that uses three lights to create a balanced and natural look. Those three lights typically, most typically are a key light, a fill light, and a backlight. And these are just a few of the many, many, many lighting styles you can use in filmmaking. The specific lighting style used in a production will depend on the desired mood, tone, and atmosphere, as well as the shooting location, the time of day, and of course, the director's vision. Beyond lighting, we've got tripods and dollies. I'm assuming I don't have to explain to anyone what a tripod is. Um, And like I said, dollies stabilize the camera and create smooth, fluid movements. Additional equipment include cranes, jibs, stabilizers, and those all create unique perspectives and movements. You can also have a Steadicam, which would also include the need to hire a Steadicam operator who basically wears a suit that's a camera rig, which keeps the camera from moving as much as possible when shooting something that can't be captured with a dolly. Having a Steadicam also majorly cuts down on setup because it's attached to a person who doesn't need a track to be placed or moved around. And then, of course, there's monitors and viewfinders. They use those to preview the images captured by the camera and make adjustments as necessary. It also, you know, lets the director see what's going on so they don't have to guess. In addition to lighting, camera angles are another important aspect of filmmaking, as they can also greatly impact the mood, tone, and storytelling of a scene. So some of the most common film angles include the eye level shot. This is taken from the same height as the subject. This creates a very natural and balanced look. There's a high angle shot. This is taken from above a subject, which makes them appear small, vulnerable, or powerless. The low angle shot does the opposite. It's from below the subject. It makes them appear larger, powerful, and imposing. There's the Dutch angle, which is a shot taken at a slanted angle. This is supposed to create the feeling of disorientation or instability. There's the overhead shot, which is a shot taken directly overhead of a subject, providing a bird's eye view of the scene. Then, of course, you've got the POV shot. This is a shot that represents the perspective of a specific character showing what they are seeing and hearing. This was made like a big deal, like in horror movies, specifically Friday the 13th. 
You got the close-up. This is a shot taken close to the subject. It's mostly just their face. It's when you want a very specific look at an actor's face or part of their face. You get it. There's the medium shot, which is taken from a moderate distance. I think it's from like the waist up, I believe is the rule. Um, Then there's the long shot, which is taken from a distance, showing all of the subject and quite a bit of their surroundings. And then there's the establishing shot, which is a shot used to introduce a new location or setting, providing a wide view of the environment. If you're smart, you will get your whole scene from this shot. So if you don't have coverage later, you can always go back to the establishing shot. That's a good. That's what they taught us in film school. If you can get all of your scene in the establishing shot, there's your two dollar tip for today. So that you're completely overwhelmed with all of the things that a cinematographer has to do, you may be wondering how to start your path to becoming a cinematographer. Well, there is no specific degree required to become a cinematographer, but many successful DPs have a background in film or related fields such as photography or the visual arts. Consider enrolling in a film school or taking courses in cinematography, lighting, and camera work. I went to Cal State Northridge, and within the film production program, there was an emphasis in cinematography, which is what I took, which is probably why I have just completely overloaded you with information, because basics for me are a little bit more than like the basics and the other things that I've done in the past year. I was like, and I took a bunch of stuff out. Like, I was like, they don't need to know this. This is too much. I I took out a whole thing on aspect ratios because I was like, that's that that's something you need to learn visually. Show notes. It'll be in the show notes. One of the best ways to learn about cinematography is, of course, to work on actual film productions. So you might want to consider volunteering on student films or other low budget projects or enrolling in a film program that provides hands on experience. This, of course, is easier said than done, of course, because you are working for free or you're going to a film school, which is, of course, not a feasible option for people who need money to, you know, get by. So through all this, you should be building a portfolio and your portfolio should showcase your best work um, and it should include examples of your lighting, your camera placements and your lens selections. You've also got to do that pesky networking, which is building relationships with other filmmakers, including directors, producers and other cinematographers, because it is an important part of pursuing a career in anything that involves film. You can also attend film festivals, join film organizations and make connections through social media to expand your network. And throughout this, you should always be developing your skills. Cinematography is a constantly evolving field and is important to stay up to date with the latest technology and techniques. You're going to want to attend workshops, taking educational courses, and read your industry publications to stay informed and continue to develop those skills. So as you can see, the DP is a crucial member of the film crew because he, she, they literally films the things. This is merely a glimpse into everything it takes to be a cinematographer. It's equal parts science, math, and art. And I did my best to give you the basiest baseline for it, but there's tons of more information to learn, and I will have links in the show notes. But for today, this has been the basics of what it takes to be a cinematographer. And 
And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox which features my watch list, film diaries, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. Um, I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. Today was a latte from Republic of Pie in NoHo. It was not very good, but that's what you, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out, the link in the show notes. Next week, the origins and history of makeup and hair for the silver screen. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap. Music